The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. I encourage you to take your Bibles, be finding 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll assume when the pages slow down, you've just about gotten there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to pick up the reading there, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 50. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the last trumpet shall sound, and all shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then they shall be brought to pass this saying it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our main text for today, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. On August the 24th, 79 A.D., the old city of Pompeii was completely destroyed by a mount called Mount Vesuvius. Historians and those scientists who've been able to gather information supposedly and put things together have supposed and gathered at least that when Mount Vesuvius, that great mountain, exploded on that day by the power of God, that the ash and the molten rock was set forth into the air more than 21 miles high. They have begun to find, as they've dug deeply, the archaeologists at least have dug and found that on that day, in a matter of seconds, more than 20 feet of ash was laying upon the ground. They have discovered and estimated, and I really I don't understand the estimation, but if they be correct, I suppose the power of God is expressed in it. 
that the power that was released by that explosion on that day was some 100,000 times greater than that of the combined efforts of the two bombs that were dropped on the cities of Hiroshima or Hiroshima and Nagasaki that closed out the majority of the Second World War. They say that beneath that more than 20 foot of ash that has been now dug through, that they have found bodies of men and women and children, even infants, that have been basically frozen in time. Mothers were found holding their children. Men were found laboring in the fields and even fishing in the ponds. People were found in the marketplaces going about their busy days shopping, purchasing items and fruits and such as that, caring for their livestock and everything you would expect to have gone on in a city such as that, that of Pompeii in that day. But they say none is more recognizable and more memorable than that of one soldier that was found standing by the gates. He stood there memorialized for all time, manning his post, holding his position, standing with spear at his side, shield at his feet, still emboldened with all the armor he had ever worn, prepared for battle if need be. never once seemingly flinching as that mountain seemingly erupted behind him. That is the attitude. That in my estimation, albeit God would not have looked to Pompeii for His inspiration, that is the mindset, that ought to be the attitude and the picture that every child of God needs to have in his or her mind when it comes to the steadfastness and the immovability that we ought to have concerning the fight that we fight on a daily basis. I'm not talking about some holy war that may come in our future, even in our nation. I'm talking about on a daily basis as we stand for the cause of God today in our lives. And the Scriptures say, Wherefore, my beloved Brethren, be ye steadfast, un or immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And friends, we need to be reminded of that constantly in our minds. Because every morning, I cannot speak for you, but every morning when I awaken from my bed, I am boiled over with discouragement in my heart over what I have to deal with when I walk out of my house, or more than that even, when I walk down my hallway to consider what I've got to face in my life every day. 
You say, well, I understand what you're talking about, preacher. The, the things that we're dealing with, the, the Muslims that have come in, the abortion clinic things that are going on, and the things that we have to stand up to, and the fights, that, the causes that are set before us. And, and maybe we feel like David as he fought Goliath, and the causes are great, but yet the causes are there. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the daily frustrations, the daily fights, the daily battles, the daily uh, things that we deal with that have us to be uh, dreading sometimes standing forth as a child of God, the things that try to push us off course so easily as we try to walk down the streets in our daily lives. And it's sad but true, but many of these temptations, many of our problems and difficulties happen inside of the Lord's church and not just outside of these four walls. So I want to take your attention today, and we're not going to take much time to go outside of the text. As a matter of fact, we won't really take hardly any time to go outside of this text, and particularly not even take any time to go outside of this verse. I want to just take this verse basically word by word, or at least phrase by phrase, as time would allow us, to just examine some of the thought process that may have been coming forth from the pen of Paul, of course by the inspiration of God, as it would guide us and divide us in having our minds to at least be thoughtful of what God or how God wants us to be prepared as Christians as we are to be. And I'm just going to use one of the phrases. It won't be the complete thought, but one of the phrases from the word, from the verses here, and that is that we should be steadfast. I used to take time in my preaching to try to make up fancy titles. Forget that. Be steadfast. Let's look at the first word or so here. First of all, he says, Wherefore, my beloved Brethren, the first thing I want you to notice here, and I'm just doing this for memory's sake. If you have pen and paper, this is for memory's sake. It's not a proof text. It's not even a point. But for memory's sake, I want you to see that what God is revealing us to begin with here is what I would entitle as the conclusion drawn. That is, when God uses that word, and it's the old-time word, the old-time preachers would have said it, where they're speaking of the word wherefore with a W, or the word therefore with a T, God is trying to say there's a conclusion here. There's some type of thing that I want you to draw forth from what I'm about to say based upon what I have already said. I had a good friend of mine tell me on one occasion, I appreciated him saying this. As a matter of fact, I would probably credit this young man as probably one of the people, whether he knew it or not, he probably changed the way that I preach more than anybody in my life without even knowing it. He told me one day, he said, Jim, I'm going to come and listen to you preach. And when I come to hear you preach, I'm going to sit down down toward the front. And when you get so far along in your sermon, he said, I'm going to hold up a piece of paper and on it I'm going to write two words and that's so what? You know, that's a good thing to ask ourselves when we preach. It's a good thing to ask ourselves when we study the Bible. And that is, as we read God's Word, we need to be asking the question often and commonly, So what? What does this mean? What does this matter? Why does this make a difference in my life? So what? Why did God even say it? And you know, it's really biblical because I'm putting that definition out beside this word wherefore. That's what God is saying. So what? 
Why is it we're going to be steadfast? Why is it we're going to be unmovable? Why is it we're going to be abounding in the work of the Lord? Why is it we're going to know our labor is not in vain? It's so what? Well, contextually, and I'm not going to take the time to read chapter 15. You've read it before, and I pray to God you'll read it more and more again. But if you go all the way back up to the very first of the chapter, he began the chapter, and here's what he says. More of them, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached, which is in you also that received, wherefore in ye stand. And that's close kin to the word, be steadfast and unmovable. But wherefore in ye stand, which ye also were saved. And if ye keep in memory the things I preached, then yes, ye believed in vain. For I dare live unto you first, that which ye also received, how Christ died according to the Scriptures, and how he was buried, and how he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And I was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve, verse six. And I was seen above five hundred brethren at once, and whom the greater remain also in the present. Also some are fallen asleep. And how he was seen of James, and also the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me, one born out of due season, and last of all, the apostles of whom I am meet not to be called an apostle, for I am persuaded of the church of God. And then he goes on to describe himself and how the grace was bestowed upon him. And then, if you go all the way down to verse 13 through 19, he begins to make, and I understand you can divide this out differently, I've divided it out. He begins to make seven proofs as to why the resurrection of Jesus, a even the resurrection of our Savior will and has been for Jesus and will one day for us be true. And then in verses 20 and following, he begins to complete a discussion which is the greatest dissertation and discussion of God on the subject of the resurrection ever to be read by mankind, period, hands down. And then he says in verse 58, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast. So what? Why can we be steadfast? Because Christ is risen. Why can we be steadfast? Because I can likewise rise. Why can we be steadfast? Immediate context of verse 58 at least, backing up to why I chose to read back into verse 50, because we can inherit the incorruptible. Why can we be steadfast? Immediate context, because we can be changed. Why can we be steadfast? Because we can gain immortality. Why can we be steadfast? Because death has been swallowed up. Why can we be steadfast? Because we can have victory. That's pretty good. That, that is the conclusion that God is trying to bring unto us to draw, to allow us to understand that yes, there's a reason why every child of God can and should be steadfast. Is it easy to be pushed off course? Yes. Is it possible? Obviously. Is it likely? Even so. Is it necessary? No. No. 
the evidence of God's Word that is pinned upon these pages as you and I are blessed to read them in black and white, what is laid out in these Scriptures gives us the information that can build into the conviction that can allow us to see all of the things that God would have us to know to have us have the ability to stand strong in the mind of God. Now notice I tried to say that carefully. We're not standing in our own minds. I cannot stand in my information, in my knowledge, in my wisdom, in my comfort, in my whatever you would add to that to try to enlighten myself on it. I can't stand in what I know. But I can certainly stand in what God knows. What He says. All the word wherefore here is In my estimation, I'm going to title it this way just for my memory and yours. This word wherefore simply becomes for us a bridge between doctrine and duty. He's given all the doctrine, verses verses 1 through 57. That's the doctrine. That's what God would have for us to know. That's what the information, that's all that He would have for us to discover. And then the duty is laid out very simply and compactly there in verse number 58. This is the what you do with that. All of us, if we've grown older, whether we're teenagers, young adults, older adults, senior citizens, it doesn't matter how we describe ourselves. As we've grown older, we can remember back, at least, to a time when our parents told us some things, some gave us some information, enlightened us with some situations, and we thought to ourselves, why in the world would they say that? Why would they try to tell us that? Why, why are they keeping us from this or making us do this? And then finally one day we, that clicks, the light goes off, and we say, that is it. That's why. And if you're like I am, or maybe you took the time, I sat down with my daddy one day and apologized to him. That's what God's doing. Here's the information. Here's the doctrine. Now here's the duty. Now, that's not the big point. That's just wherefore. So what? Right in behind, but I'm just entitling from memory here, the conclusion drawn, there's a command that's given. And that's the simplistic wording here. I love the way that God's language is clear, but simple. He says, therefore, wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast. First word is one of the smaller words in the verse. It's the word be. I've actually, and I'm not encouraging you to change God's Word. I'm just encouraging you maybe to change the print. I have actually taken the word B and taken an ink pen and written over it. I have capitalized the word B, made it all caps. B-E, capital B, capital E. Be ye steadfast. I'm not an English major. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't major in anything really in school at all. But, but I know this much. In this sentence, structured the way it is, the word be is at least the first, if not the only, uh, major verb that we come to. It's the verb in the Greek structure at least, and perhaps you would see it here in the English in the same way. This is the verb. This is the action. This is what God wants us to be. Now, let me tell you some secrets. I'm either going to get for you Greeky or geeky. I'll say that again so you can hear the difference. I'm either going to get Greeky or geeky. You may not like either one. 
This word B, B-E, it's a very simple word that I've chosen to capitalize just in my print right here. It's special because of this. Number one, it is a present tense verb. What does that mean? That means this is a verb that, that is intended to be now and forever. What he's saying is whatever adjective, which are, which are the words steadfast and unmovable, they're going to come. He says, whatever I'm putting behind this, be steadfast, be unmovable. Whatever I put behind this, it's intended that you be it right now and you be this forever. You be steadfast now, you be steadfast forever. God's not saying, you know, there's a time in your life when you really need to take a stand. How many times have we heard someone say that? And I'm not saying they're wrong. And I understand that I'm guilty so many times. When you talk too much, you probably talk too wrong. But someone says, you know, there's a time in life when we have to take a stand. Or there's a time in life when we may take a stand for God. Every time's a time to take a stand for God. It's not, there's not a moment. There's not a few seconds when you say, well, today's the day to stand up for God. You stand up for God if you're, if you're breathing. <laughs> B is a present tense, now and forever. Second, it is a second person plural. You say, what in the world does that mean? Doesn't mean squat to me, except for if you look that up, it means it, uh, it matters to everyone. The word B here doesn't imply to a certain person. The apostle's not saying the preacher needs to be steadfast. The elders need to be steadfast. The deacons need to be steadfast. The Bible class teachers need to be steadfast. This word implies to everyone in that day and who would read it for eternity. Everyone. You know, there are letters, and I'm not saying these letters don't apply to us, so don't misunderstand me. Don't quote me from your notes. But there are letters or epistles that are written, originally written primarily toward preachers. For example, first and second Timothy, Titus, preachers' epistles, written to preachers, written, written to elders. Guess what? First Corinthians is not one of them, written to the church. Intended to the church in general for all time and eternity. The B, and especially when you see the next word, be ye, that word is you all in the Greek. In country talk, it's y'all anyway. He says you all do this. That's all wrapped up in the word be, any, be to start with. The third place, this word be, and I'm preaching what the words are, this word be is in the active voice. What does that mean? It requires action. And it requires responsibility. Something that has to take place now and forever. Something that has to take place for everyone. But it's also the word B is something that takes responsibility. If you tell a child, be quiet. And they don't. Whose problem is that? You say, well, it's my fault as a parent if they talk. No, it's not. It's your fault as a parent if they talk and talk and talk and you fail to correct them. Then there's some, can there be some fault put on you. 
you don't understand how to discipline and, and to teach that child and to mold them into what you want them to be as an adult, but, but the fault is on the one who commits the, I wouldn't call that a crime, would I? But who commits the fault. Takes responsibility to be something. And finally, not to carry this on too far, but it is an imperative also. That means these things are commands. It's not a matter of opinion. When God has words to be penned in His Holy Writ, He's not just giving, you know, great opinions. Here's what I, here's what I think would be a good idea. Here's a good suggestion that ought to be considered at least by all. Not, that's not God's ways. It's not a matter of option. So many, so many people sadly read God's Word and they say, well, you know what? I really, really, I love to read the 23rd Psalm. It's so beautiful. It reminds me of so much and takes me through that valley of the shadow. It is wonderful. It is wonderful. But if you read the 51st Psalm about your sins and, and trying to make sure that your life is clean, you see, some people want to take the option. Well, these things are matters of obligation. Be. Be ye what? Next word, steadfast. No fancy terms here, just straight off the page. Be ye steadfast. Now, what does it mean to be steadfast? Well, the, the actual wording behind this, the word steadfast literally means to be seated. And I won't sit down because I didn't realize that chair sunk as far as it did. And I don't have old knees, but I wasn't expecting to go that far a while ago. But be seated. To be steadfast means literally to have a seat. Now, back in the 60s or so, some of you remember, I don't know if you participated, some of you remember the protest that occurred then, and, and can occur now, I guess, but occurred much more likely then, where people had what they called a sit-in. And the difficulty there was that when someone went into a place or whatever it was, they sat down on the floor, kind of pulled their knees up, put their arms in, held tight. It is amazing... How someone, I'll make an example that's easy, somebody who weighs a hundred pounds, you, you might pick them up if, if you can get your arms around them and kind of pick them up around their waist and maybe they reach around. You ever picked your child up that weighed a certain amount? And, you know, if they put their arms around you and you around them, you pick them up off the ground, you move them over here. You get somebody who's knotted up in a ball on the floor, pick them up. They weigh twice as much. They're difficult to move. The literal picture here is that, that we as children of God, we need to take a seat where we are. We need to be settled in. We need to be anchored to the floor. I would say it like this. Have our feet nailed down. Now, I scratch my head and say, well, you know, in what areas? Right here. Number one, doctrinally. We've got to be settled or steadfast, nailed to the floor doctrinally. 
If you look back to chapter 15, there would have been no reason to even have chapter 15 penned, in hindsight, I suppose, than the fact that many were off doctrinally concerning the possibility and the idea of the resurrection. Verse 33, that so many uh, quote or, or, or misquote or use wrong out of context, look at it, you, you know it. Be, be not deceived, for evil communications corrupt good manners or morals. Evil communications corrupt good manners. They say, well, let me get my teenager in here and let them know that. Nothing wrong with that. Take a night and tell your teenager that that had something to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ too. And if you'll tell them that, that things were so bad back in that day that people, contextually folks, people verses 1 through 12, who some of which had laid their eyes on the resurrected Lord, laid their eyes on Him, maybe spoke to Him, some of which may have touched Him, in a few days, or a few months, or at least inside of a few years, decided He didn't raise. He wasn't raised. Why? Verse 33, their friends came to Him and said, you didn't see that. That didn't happen. Are you going to believe that? Evil communications corrupted your manner, your morals. We've got to be steadfast. We've got to be settled. We've got to be fixed doctrinally. Now we live in a, in a day, and I'm not talking about the world. I'm not, I'm not trying to be gloom and doom about what you saw on the news last night or what you read in the paper. We live in a day where it's so easy inside of the religious world, narrow it down to the church, it's so easy for our own brethren sometimes to lose sight, to lose track of where we have, that's a key word I'm emphasizing, where we have to stand doctrinally. Because what happens is that their good friends and their family members say, well, I know we all used to think that way, but that's, that's precisely what happened then. I know you used to believe Jesus rose from the dead, but come on, folks. Times have changed. Doctrinally, we're to be steadfast and also practically. Got to be steadfast. He goes on to talk about how this steadfastness is later going to apply itself to the work of the Lord, which we're not down that far yet, but it applies itself to the work of the Lord. That is, to the toil, to the labor, to the things that we have to do, to, to, uh, to the things that we stay consistent in. But we spend a lot of time today looking for a place of ease, looking for a place of relaxation. And if you want to look for a guilty dog who barks, Bow wow. Be steadfast. Next word, unmovable. 
You say, well, I've, I've heard this talked about before and the similarities between these words. And, and yes, friends, there are similarities. There really are. But I've also known this for quite a while. They're two different words. They were and they are in the English. They were in the Greek, the original languages. They're different words. Different words have different meanings. If I tell you I've got a cat and a dog, you know I've got two different animals. If I tell you I've got a blue tick and a red bone, I've got two different dogs. I tell you I've got a chihuahua and a great dane, I've got two different dogs. One of them will guard guard the house and one of them won't. Chihuahua's better, you know, for that. Look at this. He says, be ye, that is continue to be steadfast, continue to be unmovable. Now this word unmovable is is quite peculiar also. It's actually the word movable. It's actually the word which would would tend to, to say, let yourself be pushed around. Just, just, just be a pushover. Except, in the original language, it puts a little, little prefix in front of it, similar to like we would the letter A. You say, I don't understand that. Have you ever been to a museum? What's a museum really about? It's about exercising the mind. Now, you may not be into that, but it's supposed to exercise the mind. Have you ever been to an amusement park? You know the word amusement is the opposite. It means not to think. A museum makes you think. An amusement park helps you not to think. This word that is found in the language for unmovable means, it would mean to move around, but it puts the prefix I in front of it, which means not to be moved. It's a negative word, really. It means that you've been moved before, but don't be moved anymore. Don't be moved in your word. Don't be moved in your wills. Don't be moved in your work. Whatever you're doing or whatever you've done for the Lord, just keep on doing it. This time of year with high school, college, football, whatever, professional, if you, you're into that also, sometimes you hear people talk about being blown off the ball. You know, you got offenses, you got, you got people who are there and they're ready to protect that ball. They just blown off the ball. Christians can be blown off of the ball. They've got good intentions. They they know what they want to do. They know what they need to do. But they're just blown away. Do you know when we have permission from God to move? In eternity. That's all. In eternity. The question that has to come to mind then is this. What will move me? What level of disappointment? What level of discouragement? What level of disgust? What level of disagreement with the brethren? What will move me? What will do it? I went a lot of years without, without really experiencing that. You know, I, 
You can't stop me. The world doesn't necessarily do that. The world doesn't necessarily discourage me. You, you let the brethren you let the brethren disappoint you. You hit your face. When I was five years old. I ran through my mother's living room. I got a carpet burn all the way down my nose. I never forgot that. I've had carpet burn spiritually last year or so. It hurts. How strong are we? Can we be moved? And very quickly, be as steadfast, unmovable. And then look at the next part. I'm going to move into this and just, just separate from that. We have the conclusion drawn. That's just the word wherefore. Then we have the idea here of the command that's given. That's the verb, the verb be. The two adjectives, be steadfast, be unmovable. But look at the consistency he requires. And this is important. We won't have much time for it, but it's important. Unmovable. Then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He says we're to always abound in the work of the Lord. The word always there shows the consistency here. That is, He doesn't give us permission to put ourselves in park. He doesn't give ourselves permission to be in neutral. He doesn't give ourselves permission certainly to go in reverse. Every Christian has to be in drive. The older cars, some of you had these, they had overdrive. You know what overdrive was? That's the word almost. The word abounding means to superabound. It means that if you could jump, none of us, anybody here named Michael Jordan? No. If you could jump six inches, you need to try to jump eight. We have to give it more than we think. We can. This is actually a very special word. It means to superabound. It means to give it excess, to go over the top, to exceed what we think is normal. It's the same exact word here that's used in John 10 and verse 10 when Jesus said, I am come that you have life and that you might have it more. Translated different in English, but same word, abundantly. It's superabound. I'm coming to give you the best life that you never expect. It's the same word used in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above that with all that which you ask or think. The idea is there, God can do more for us than we could ever expect. You say, well, I've always been a hard worker for the Lord. Just ask so and so. Check with the elders if you don't believe me. God didn't care what the elders thought of your service. Well, I know I've given it my all. I'm thankful for your confidence. But God wants your everything. don't have time to put all the context with this, but in Matthew 5 and verse 20, Jesus said there, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes 
and the Pharisees, she shall in no likewise enter the kingdom of God. Scribes and the Pharisees, friends, gave it everything they knew to give it. He said, you got to give it more than that. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is addressed again to everyone. The word work there is a Greek word, ergon. It's where we get our English word, sometimes energy. It implies that it does take work. You could also imply in that that there's no, never, never an easy place to serve. And he says here about that, for as much as you know or ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. See the word know. A lot of times that word know is backed up by a word that preachers will use on you all the time. They'll say, well, the word know is connected to the word, Greek word, gnosko. Not here, buddy. Not here. That word, gnosko, means to have an intimate knowledge. This word, that's not this word here. This word here is not that word. It's different. This word doesn't mean to have an intimate knowledge of. This word means you see it. I won't ask how many of you have ever had a traffic speeding ticket. I won't ask that. But if you're here and you've not had a speeding ticket, that doesn't take away the fact that you know you can get one if you go over 70 on this interstate. So you know you can get one even though you've not experienced it because you've seen it. You know that your labor's not in vain in the Lord. If what? What's the Word of God teach backwards? Your labor's not in vain. Why? Because you plan on abounding. Your labor's not in, not in vain. Why? Because you plan on abounding as you're unmovable. Your labor's not in vain. Why? Because you plan on abounding because you're not going to be unmovable because you're planning to be steadfast. And why would that be? Because you're thankful to God that there ever was the opportunity of such a resurrection. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. Then you may not have ever heard much about the resurrection. I'm apologizing to you today because time did not allow, nor did I really choose the subject to be in totality the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That wasn't really our intention. But I or someone here would love to sit down today with you and talk about that because that is the key, according to Romans 1 and verse 4, that is the key to unlocking who Jesus was. It was the resurrection that proved Him to be the very Son of God. But the power of that resurrection can be obtained and can be known fully by your obedience through faith, through repenting of your sins, all these things backed up totally by Scripture through confessing His great name, through being baptized. That is to come in contact with His blood, to have your sins to be washed away. You can become a Christian today because of His resurrection, because of the fact that He died. We don't serve a dead Savior. If you're here this morning, you are a child of God's. The thing that will be most difficult in your life is being steadfast, living through life every day, 
and only God's way you can do that. If you fail God in any way or you need to come home, why not choose to do that today? You can do it through prayer and repentance. Allow the Christians here in this place to help you as we stand and as we sing.